So Tom was just telling me he he just got back from Florida. Oh, how's Florida? I had to do um, a lot of work while I was down there. So I spent a lot of time in the kitchen of the condo we were staying in. I hear that the beach is nice. <laughs> Next time I go, I'll be sure to check it out. But what were you doing down there? I was seeing family and it was just during the school semester. So it just, it worked out that I would see family and that was, that was it. And I would do work. Yeah. What part of Florida? Yeah. Uh, outside Jacksonville, Amelia Island. I don't know if. Oh uh, yeah. I know Amelia Island. Yeah. seems like everybody in Atlanta does now too. Uh, my family's been going there for like 20 years before anybody knew about it. Mm. And now it's where everybody is retiring. Yeah. I mean, that's like that part of Florida is like the Wisconsin Dells of Chicago. If that makes sense. It's like Myrtle Beach, right? A little bit. Or is it fancier? Well, uh, I've never been to either of these places. <laughs> oh, you've never been to Myrtle Beach? Oh, okay. No, it's no. like Myrtle Beach is the Jersey Shore of the South. Okay, so and this Wisconsin Dells is the Jersey Shore of the Midwest. Right. So this was this okay. is not that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is definitely like it's got a nice quaint town, but it's mostly it feels like a place that you would go after you're done, like with, with living, your, just with done your, living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're done living, I want to go play golf now for 20 years and die next to the beach. Yeah. Yeah, I, I went down to the um, St. Petersburg, Tampa area a lot when I was a kid, um, which is like, as an adult, you go there and it's not really too party. It's not a lot of young people, which I mm -hmm. always liked because it was it's just like quiet, old people. Sometimes the beach was warm. A lot of times on that side, is, it's just not south enough to be super interesting. Um, but yeah, I always like to go to Florida for a short time. Yeah, the shorter the better. <laughs> yeah, not a long-term stay. Yeah, um, yeah. And in that part of Florida, North Florida is just South Georgia with ocean. So it's it's just the rednecks of South Georgia. Yeah. Who have pitched a tent. Um, but okay, Eileen, you're in Chicago with Jody, right? Yes. Yeah. Correct. How long have you been there? I have been in Chicago um, since 2005. Um, so I've been here a while and then I moved away for like three years in between. Uh, I was sort of at a point where um, I was dating someone, I was drinking a lot and I was like, well, e either I can get married, I can quit drinking or we have to break up. And we didn't do any of that. We just moved to California. So it was like, we're not going to deal with any of that. Um, so I was in some marriage. Yeah. I was like, that, that works. Um, so I was in the Bay area for about a year and a half. And then I went back to Ohio where I'm from. And that, that is when I ended up getting sober. Um, and then came back to Chicago. So I've been back for almost 10 years. And you've been sober for 10 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think I saw that on your. Wow. Instagram. Congratulations. Sorry, I did a little talking. Please. Yes. No, yeah, no. I, I just celebrated 10 um, on the 9th, which. Nice. Is, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. What? Yeah. Uh, so you got sober in Ohio. Yes. Is that where you're from? Yeah. Yeah. So I was like moving back home, living with my parents. And then um, 
you know, you're not supposed to do anything drastic within a year, but within a year of getting sober, I had moved back to Chicago. <laughs> I was like, this will be good. Um, but it ended up, yeah, it ended up being a good thing. Um, but yeah, so I've been in Chicago since, since, uh, 2014. Yeah. Or back in Chicago since then. Were you directing the whole time? Were you in the theater community or were you always in the theater community? Yeah. Yeah. Should I, I ask, are we recording right now? Yeah. We've oh, been recording for like five minutes. Beautiful. I'm glad <laughs> I didn't say anything terrible. Um, yeah. Uh, Good, good, good. I was like, oh, should I save my stories? No, no stories are coming. No, 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 no. We like to start them real candid, usually in the middle of Tom telling us a story or something <laughs> like that. Good, good. So all the Floridians know how I feel now. Um, yep. So yeah, I, I studied uh, theater in college at Loyola. So that's why I moved here was to go to Loyola. And I've been um, sort of did my first professional shows in college, like starting out in small, uh, small roles in college. And then, yeah, I've been working in, in theater around the country since, since about 2008, 2009. Whoa. Yeah. Not always directing and not always at a high level, you know, sometimes you got to put on a show in a basement, but. Yeah. We, oh, yeah. yes, we know that. Yeah. <laughs> I think most of our shows were in basements. Honestly, our best shows are in basements. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we met. That's where Jody and I met at a theater called The Basement. Yeah, oh, really? yeah that's right. Yeah. You know, actually, Tom, I, I saw on Facebook memories that we met. Um, that was in 2014 when we met. We met on September 11th. Yeah, we became friends on 9-11. On 9-11 in, in, a, in a comedy um, club called The Basement, which was in a basement of like a, like a, I guess, a corporate kind of park like a one of those little like commercial park kind of things oh yeah it was really weird they didn't sell liquor but they had a shit ton of candy but you uh, didn't buy liquor so, there uh i thought it was it felt very like like youth centric oh yeah we didn't have a liquor license but we did have donations for liquor. Oh, that's right yeah yeah it, it did feel very youth centric but that um, it's the only comedy club I've been to that has ring pops. You know what I mean? Like it had ring pops, Laffy Taffy. It had a, a huge candy selection, but it was fun. <laughs> uh, more comedy clubs should have ring pops. and Yeah, you know, right. Like, I would really reinvigorate the whole scene. Yeah. Cut down on heckling too. It's like some people just need to shut up and suck on a ring pop, you know? Yeah. If we can't <laughs> smoke inside anymore, That's right. why can't we just have the ring pops? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or gobstoppers, you know? Blow pops, anything like that. Anything that just keeps the mouth busy. Blow pops. Oh, those were so good. When I was in uh when I was a teenager, I was addicted to blow pops. Um, it was like my it wasn't like an addiction. I was just sort of looking for my thing. And and so I was like the blow pop guy who always had a blow pop in his mouth. And then eventually you think you were like I a yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what I was going for. Yeah, I just thought it was like comb through your hair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so eventually, you know, I always had a blow pop in my mouth and then eventually I got 19 cavities. Um, <laughs> this is a true story. That number is not even exaggerated. I have a, way too many cavities. It's an, it's still an issue to this day. I went to the dentist like not even a month ago and his expression was, whoa. Uh <laughs> And it was all because I was just look, you know, I was just looking for my shtick. I was trying to, and I thought blow pops was my thing. 
I loved going to Party City and getting a bag of them for like three bucks. It was, you know, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very similar to picking up drinking as your thing. Instead of like 19 cavities, you lose maybe 19 years of your life. But yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely fed into my addiction. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and I don't know if, if anyone else has had this experience, but when people ask me like, you know, like, when did you know you were an addict or an alcoholic? I mean, one, it was in my family, but just never spoken about. And also I was the type of kid that like, if I liked something, I would, I would drive it into the ground. Like I got really, you know, quote, quote, addicted to diet root beer. And I would literally have like a pack, a 12 pack of diet root beer a, a day and just be in my room, like sucking down root beer. And it would be like, wow, I just, I just really like the things I like. And then as I would get older, it would be like, Ooh, when am I, when am I using these things to cope? Like, when does it become just that normal kid thing of, Oh, they like the same show. So they watch it over and over again. And when is it, I can't fall asleep unless I'm doing X, Y, Z. And I don't know. And, And eventually once you find alcohol and you're like, Oh, well, this solves all those problems in my brain because it just kind of knocks it out. So I'm like, oh yeah, looking back, I was an addict in so many little ways and just, yeah. you know, I just, you know, got the right thing or the wrong thing put in my hands, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I definitely, uh, during my blow pop phase, <laughs> I also had a pepperoni and mayonnaise sandwich phase. Oh boy. Yeah. So <laughs> I was, I would eat so many of them. I would have probably have like one, I would, ha- I would make two in the morning and then I would have one for lunch and then I would sit on one in my, I put one in my back pocket. Cause that was my thing. It was like my shtick. <laughs> I, I don't remember ever needing to have a thing that involved like sitting on sandwiches. <laughs> like- I was so desperate for attention. Yeah. Listen, so that I was, <laughs> I would, I would sit on one all day. And then when I got home, it would be like nice and warm. And then I would like, it was like a slow press, like a slow panini, like a, like a crock pot panini combination, like an egg, like a duck on an egg. And, uh, that was like my after school snack was this like smashed egg mayonnaise and pepperoni sandwich. And I got, I ate so many of them that even at 18, I was like having like heart palpitations because I was just eating way too much pepperoni. It was an issue. Go to the doctor, and it's like, well, you know, how, how much, how much are you exercising? What's your blood pressure? And you're like, but aren't you going to ask me how many mayonnaise and pepperoni sandwiches I eat a week? What is, yeah, what's a healthy amount yeah, what's of everybody else doing? Yeah, what's a healthy amount of cavities? What's a healthy amount of uh, pepperoni to eat a day? You know, I never made that connection with my alcoholism and my pepperoni and mayonnaise sandwich addiction until just now. So it's, I'm glad that I'm getting like a rounded view of my, my recovery here. Well, that's kind of, it's an interesting point to make though. Like looking back at your own, um, childhood or early adulthood, teenage years, wherever, where is that compulsivity expressing itself with where, like, what are you reaching for as a substance or as a, some kind of comfort? That you're just you, Eileen. I like your point of like you're rewatching the same television shows where you'll just you'll run them into the ground. Like I remember in middle school, I would listen to the same song over and mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. until I I couldn't anymore. Yeah. Um, and and I like that's such an interesting pattern 
to see in, in reflection, like try to find it in yourself, but also just as a way to, if you're, you're like a, someone who is around students of that age, being aware of that. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I don't, you know, I think that is a, a familiar behavior in a lot of young people, like four-year-olds want to watch, you know, oh, I love that show. Let's watch it again. And then teenagers are like, I love this song. This is all I can listen to. But I think, I think I can only make that um, discernment looking back, like looking back. It wasn't just that I liked the song. It was that I needed to go through the behavior again. I needed something external to help me cope with my feelings. And a lot, you know, everyone needs that. But I think then it kind of goes from you grow up, you learn how to become more emotionally intelligent. Maybe you go see a professional person to help you through that. You learn healthy ways of coping. And for me, I feel like I was always an addict. It just, no matter what time I first picked up, I was going to be like, it, there, there was a sense of inevitability. Um, which is actually subconsciously why I think I didn't drink for a long time. I didn't have my first drink till I was 20. And wow. I was always very like, I don't drink. I'm really cool. I'm very straight edge, you know, Jesus forever, like very much one of the coolest people uh, in the world. But it was a huge thing that I, I didn't drink. And that made mm. me really better than everyone. Were you straight edge? Were you in the hardcore scene? I was like, I was like straight edger posers. If you have to be part of a community, then you're not even cool enough to be whoa. like, it, yeah, it, it, to me, it, I was sort of, I was above those people, which. Yeah, you, you were a hardliner. Yeah. What you, that's what that was called. <laughs> Again, a, a very cool and tolerable person. <laughs> But that's so that's so interesting. Like you, the the uh, the distinction that you made between like child behavior, teenage behavior, where they're still inputting stuff, but it's not that it's maybe not that big of a deal. Maybe it's just that phase. But then you have this added element of this is my identity. Like this is what I'm clinging to, um, and it's it's very that is very interesting. Like did you 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 said it was it was very important that you weren't a drinker and you started drinking at 20 when did you make that decision like i'm not gonna drink like was that just a part of like the jesus thing or just a more conscious yeah it was the the not gonna drink was a very conscious like i'm not gonna get in trouble i'm not gonna be like other people i i also grew up with a lot of brothers i grew up in a pretty you know Christian Midwestern patriarchal sort of society. Um, not as much mm -hmm. in my family directly, but like, you know, if you drink and you're a girl, you get yourself into trouble. And yeah. there was that kind of fear wrapped up in that. Um, but yeah, so I was going to be stronger. I was going to be cooler. I was going to be better than those, you know, all the other people that, that did that. Um, and then even in college, it was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be better and cooler. And then I finally was kind of got tired of 
taking care of people of, I got tired of being responsible for myself. And so then I kind of took drinking as great. I don't have to have any responsibility for what I do or what I say. Um, and it was one of my friends has mentioned like, yeah, I mean, we were all, you know, we're theater people in Chicago. So we were all pretty like loud and blasted and singing rent and screaming and, you know, do trying to do like Eugene O'Neill plays drunkenly together. Like we were all messy, but she was like, you, you were doing it different. Like there was just something, the way you were doing it was different. And I don't know that any of us understood like what was different about it, but I think for me, it just, I, I always sort of view people like to talk about the addict version of themselves or like their addiction being a different entity than they are. I, I feel like for me personally, it is, it is me. Like the voice of my addict self is still me saying it. Um, but that's the voice that I, I just let take over, you know, the voice that was like, see how much damage you can cause and see how close you can, you know, push yourself to the edge. How far can you push people away from you until they leave? How, you know, how far can you push things until you get hurt? Um, mm -hmm. It was just a, a reckless voice that I've, I was like, yeah, great. This is, this is wonderful. And I don't have to remember anything that I did. <laughs> yeah. We talk about that a good bit, like testing the margins of the extreme. Like when you were saying about just pushing people away, seeing not really having accountability for yourself, that was something that really spoke to me. And, you know, that was something that I really struggled with. And that was like kind of a bit of my identity where it was like, oh, you know, I was drunk. Like you could always just like blow it off, yeah. you know, like, oh yeah, I said all that. I did all that stupid stuff when I was drunk and everyone, you wake up the next morning and you're just like ridden with all that kind of like shame and guilt. And like, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I spoke to this person and I did this thing. And you're like, eh, I was drunk. And it's like so liberating in a way, yeah. but then also there is accountability. In the end, you are like hurting people. In the end you are, you know, it gets to be a little bit too much. Was it ever, I think to drive it right back to the the theme, is it, did your drinking ever really, um, like when you were in these like self-destructive kind of phases though, did you find yourself tapping into creativity or, or tap, like find yourself in these sort of throes of creative wiles like the romantics would do or, or how did it affect it? Oh man, I wrote some of the best poetry that I can't bear to read now. You know, it's like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, a lot of plays that will be like three three lines long in a document and it'll be like, ooh, the play about Hitler's flower shop or something. And I'll wake up and I'll be like, what the hell is that? Like, why? No thanks. Um, and I would, I would watch that play. Right. Okay. Well, here we yeah. go. This is Let's write 2024. It. <laughs> watch out, Goodman. Um, I feel like, you know, it, it coincided with being young and just graduating and going out into the theater world. Um, and I will say, I love the Chicago theater community and all the Chicago arts communities, but I think everyone's getting better, but there is this sense of like a, a little bit of a bacchanalia. Oh, we just did a show. Let's all go out to the bar. 
or hey, you know, when I did, I did stand up for a little bit, and that was always at bars and everybody, you know, have a drink, and oh, we don't have money to pay you, but you get two free drink tickets, and you know, let me buy you a beer and talk to the mentor figure and all of that kind of. You have to participate in that. You feel like you have to, that that's part of the uh, networking. That's where deals get struck and whatever. And so I think that is, that is definitely um, part of that, but all in all to sort of really answer the question, I, I made sloppy art when I was Mm. drinking, I was hungover all the time. I wanted to throw up all the time. So on one hand, it's like, oh, I'm young and dumb and creative, but also like I physically like could not sit through a day, you know, without like feeling physically ill. So in terms of the art I was making, it was, I still look back at it fondly. There were still some really cool experiences, but I just was not firing on half my cylinders. (laughs) Well, and I, I wonder based on, because where you are, where where your mental faculties are, and when they're being zapped by drinking and late nights and all of this camaraderie that may or may not be healthy, the the quality of art is always up for debate. It just depends on who you are. But what where did you find the like the content of the art that you were producing, did it have a theme or style that was, you could kind of see like, oh, this is because Mm. I'm not firing on all cylinders. Like the the content that I'm creating is reminiscent of the life that I'm leading. So it's, I, I don't know, like, I wonder what, just to reflect like back to the art that you were, producing what what was the content like it's a good question i haven't i haven't thought about it so much that way and i guess that what i'm realizing too is that i was doing at that point in time i was self-producing a little bit like doing some staged readings or trying to you know kind of do some things on my own but it was a lot of trying to break into other companies or you know, existing things and trying to be a part of those things. Um, so it wasn't as much of me being the creative force, um, which I of course found frustrating. It was like, I remember graduating from college and wanting to be a theater director. Like that's what I wanted to be. That's what I sort of had focused on. And I was like, okay, like where's the classified ad for, you know, professional theater director, like salary, you know, it's not quite the way it goes. I remember I got a call from the Goodman Theater before I graduated. And I, I, I legitimately was like, oh my God, they're calling me for a job. And I missed the call and I was like, oh my God, I hadn't applied to a job. I hadn't, and I called back and they were like, oh yes, we're hoping to, you know, get donations or do you want to be a season subscriber? And I was like, (laughs) <laughs> like, why would I think that the Goodman Theater is like, hmm, let's see, who are the 22-year-old graduating directors that we can offer a main stage show million-dollar budget to? But, you know, that was the sort of the dissonance is, is like, 
Mm. I think in a lot of artistic, creative um, education places, they train you to do these things and then you go out in the world and it is hard to make a living. Um, And so during all this time too, I was always working a day job Um, and then just doing, doing whatever theater I could at night. Uh, But always again, kind of other, not being the, not being like the artistic voice and just being like an assistant or a side, you know, a a stage manager, kind of somebody that's in a more um, crew role, you know. Mm. Hmm. Did that change after you got sober? Yeah, I think it, it changed one just by... I got sober uh, when I was 26. So like, you know, not so long out of college, but just being out of college enough to kind of stop chasing other people's art and to be like, what do I want to make? And then as I was in my last couple of years of drinking, I started to uh, do one woman shows. So I like, out in San Francisco, I, I did my first one woman show. Um, and then that was a big turning point in like telling my own stories and mm-hmm. working through my own life. And there were a lot of things where, you know, my first, my first show was about faith and about Jesus and kind of like is the little bit of, um, waiting for for Godot, kind of waiting for Jesus sort of show. And then any show I tried to make after that, like I kept running up against addiction as a metaphor that I didn't want to deal with. Um, So shows about like food and exercise and being obsessed, like being obsessively hurting yourself through diet culture or hurting yourself through, you know, different kinds of means and being so like unable to stop the cycle of certain things, but it was just never officially about alcohol. Um, so I look back at a lot of the things that I did in, in like the last couple of the last gasp years where it was like, Ooh, I was trying to, uh, trying to work this out, but still negotiate, um, the fact that I, I, I can still drink well, I like, I know I have a problem drinking, but I bet you I can figure it out and I can still do it. You know, there were a few years of that. Oh, yeah. And that was yeah. the, the last two years or the last couple of years um, that you mentioned, that was you, like your work, your voice. Yes. Yeah. Me writing, okay. me directing, me performing it. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's really like solo work is really tough to, um, to hide from yourself because it is just you. You don't have another actor you can project stuff on. The audience is looking at you. And and I started to do things, you know, that again, were, were my stories. It wasn't, I wasn't playing a character. It was me on stage. And, you know, part of the thing about being honest and vulnerable on stage is like, you can't, you can't uh, keep lying to yourself either. Yeah. And you have that instant reaction to things. I mean, I know that when I was doing stand up, there'd be jokes where I'd be like, oh, this is funny. And it's a joke that's essentially rooted in, in my drinking. And then the audience would be like, oh, boy. And you're like, oh, wait, no, no, this is funny. 
yeah. <laughs> and it was just like that that direct you know denial where like well it's the audience the just a different audience that didn't really find it, you know but yeah it's like you can't you have to face it you have to like attack it i think that it's it's like on that note though it's really interesting that your work at the time was trying to confront addiction but in this backdoor type way where yeah. your your subconscious is kind of like all right so we've noticed some things and we don't like what's going on um why don't we try to process them and your conscious mind is still going but but i got this yeah <laughs> like i hear you but i let let me say something else yeah yeah um, no, i had this whole like performance art play that didn't have any dialogue but it, it i was like this is about diet culture and so i would come out and i would be exercising and i would be counting like you know with weights like one two three four five then i would go over to a plate of food and like be smelling it it, it was like a really um gross piece too mm. i would be like you know sticking my face in food and then i would take a rubber band and snap it on myself to like Oof. teach to teach myself not to want the food and I would count one, two, three, four, five, and I would do sets of that, like sets of the exercise. I'd go back to the exercise, one, two, three, four, five, you know, like the healthy coping. I'd go back to the food and I would, um, oh, the second one, the second round was I would take a fork and scrape myself, one, two, three, four, five. Then I would go back, exercise again, and then the the ending part was I would hit myself and then eventually I would, I got so, I would get so worked up that then I just eat the food and then I, and it's like all, it's like lasagna and a cupcake and it's covering my face. It's dripping on the floor. Like it's just disgusting. And then I go back to the exercising covered in this food. One, two, three, four, five. And I was like, yeah, this is about diet culture. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody want to drink after the show? Like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was about food and, and those issues as well. But it was like, oh, this is a piece about like trying not to be an addict and punishing yourself for yeah. being, you know, like for having the brain you have. Um, yeah. yeah that that's an interesting that that's, cycle of self-destruction yeah. really really good point you bring up because in the the lifestyle of the addict there is a constant self gratif like self-gratifying nature to it but then an immediate i have to find a way to punish myself about this mm -hmm. yeah and if it if the hangover is not going to do it i'll find a different way but the it there it that's it's uh, like the same coin yeah well, and with that, like, piece too, I was gonna say with that piece too, I would be literally hurting myself. I would have bruises, I would have scratch marks. And I thought I am being such a good artist. I'm really doing it. You know, like I'm doing, I'm doing art so hard that it hurts. <laughs> and it was also a thing of like, if you're going to be this vulnerable and this honest about something and you're going to show these ugly sides you need to be punished like it needs you need to show the audience how much it hurts to do that and 
yeah, so I was always, I was like, oh, everyone look like I have all these, you know, scratch marks and, and I, oh, man, it, like I, it hurts where I hit myself last night. I'm so cool. And I, I legitimately don't do that piece anymore. I really like it because I do think it is very um, interesting and as a, as a, as a piece, but I'm like, oh, I can't do that anymore. I just physically, emotionally won't do that to myself. Yeah. It's extremely self-destructive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, and it's also that, that same extreme where you're like, I'm going to do this thing the most intense way possible and, and push myself, you know, to a new level on stage just for the sake of art. You know, that's like, we're bringing right back to that, like obsession that like going deep into it, I'm going to do it the hardest I can do. Yeah. Um, it seems rough. What was it called? It's called weight slash training. Okay. So it'd be weight yeah. training or weight and training. Um, I have some videos of it online and some, I have some really great pictures online of me, like, you know, looking so intense and food all over my face. And, um, but yeah, I, I did that piece in Cincinnati. I did it in Chicago and I did it in a, at a festival in Tampa. I did it in New York. So I like took it places and did it for, I think about two or three years. Um, and then I did it one more time when I was sober and it was different doing it sober. I was like, Oh, mm, I can, like, I could tell this was, it, it was interesting within the first few years of sobriety because I was still a little bit like, yes, this pain is good because it's, it's good to feel guilt and it's good to feel shame about all of this. And it's good felt still, it was like, Oh, and I still get to hurt myself, you know, and people will clap when I hurt myself. But it got to a point where I was like, Oh, what am I doing? (laughs) Like, but ow, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. You're like, stop clapping. This hurts. (laughs) If you keep clapping, I'll keep doing it. (laughs) Well, and, and the, you're also living with a new, very r- real level of intensity in your day to day by being sober. Mm-hmm. So to illustrate that on stage is almost like this. I this is my life now, though. Like it's it hurts to be this way, especially those first couple years. Um, so that 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 makes sense that you would look at it and you would feel different to perform that. Yeah, well, and again, especially because it was a piece that. I, I think this happens a lot with artists where somebody creates a painting, somebody creates a book, somebody d- creates a piece of art. And to them, it's about, oh, this is about the war that I survived. And then someone reads it and they go, oh, this is about your father. And you're like, this is about my father? Oh my God. You know, like, I, I think that artists don't always understand what they're, because they're, I don't think that you go, um, you set out intellectually with art. Think I believe, and I believe it's best when it, a lot of it comes from emotionality. And so then you're not intellectually um, analyzing it as you're doing it. And then later people are like, well, you created this in a post 9-11, you know, pre-Obama. Uh, it's about economics. And you're like, I guess maybe it was about that. Like, I didn't, I didn't write a paper on it, but like I painted it, you know? Yeah. Did that affect like your creative outlet at all? Because I know for me, 
there's like that, you know, there's that the Dean and community where he's like this, I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. And anytime I'm writing something, I'm like, boy, I hope this doesn't like show my hand and people like find out something about me that I don't know about myself, which really upsets me when someone's like, oh, you know, this is about this issue that you haven't spoken about. And I'm like, I don't want to, that's not, that's for me to figure out, <laughs> you know, I, uh, is that did that come up like maybe in like your sobriety like afterwards in your work or anything like that? I mean, one, I'm always like, I'll take free therapy. Like I pay for therapy, but like, <laughs> sure, I'll take it. Two, I definitely used that gif of the dean um, in response to they just released this still image of Gabriel Byrne playing Samuel Beckett. <laughs> And it just on this random Facebook thread, I was like, hmm, I hope this doesn't awaken something. <laughs> that was like yesterday night. So that's why I'm thinking of it. Anyway, um, it's interesting. I, I also feel like, so I got sober and then like, I, I had decided to quit drinking several times in my life. Um, mm-hmm. Really, it was, I think the first time was eight months after I had started drinking. Like someone in my family came to me and they were like, you're drinking too much. And I was like, I'm going to quit. I will. And then something happened that I needed to drink. Something else happened. I needed to drink. And so my whole drinking career was under the guise, under this umbrella of like, I know. And because I knew right away, I knew right away what was happening. So I had been kind of trying to quit for a while, um, but not really, like, not really. And then the last time I tried to quit, I also said, maybe I'll go to AA and check that out for, you know, who knows. And I know people have mixed feelings about AA. It works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone. Um, Every room is different because it doesn't have any oversight. So Sometimes you're going to have a great experience walking into the room. Other times there's going to be, who knows who's going to be there. But I walked into the room and I immediately was like, oh, okay. Yep. It was just so, it was, it was like seeing yourself in a mirror. And I was like, well, this is where I am. Um, And so I was happy to be in that place, but I wasn't, it took me a long time it took me like maybe two years to feel really comfortable saying it out loud or sharing it with a lot of people. Um, so I would, I sort of still had it as a secret to a lot of folks. Um, and as I continued to perform and doing like personal storytelling, doing stand up, doing stories about my life, it was hard to work around it. You know, it would be like, well, I'm in a really interesting place in my life that I just won't really talk about in specific form. Or I was at a gathering of people who all had a similar issue that I have. And, you know, it just was talking around it. Um, And I finally, you know, kind of got to a point where I was like, I'm going to say it and I'm going to start talking about it. And then I started um, creating lots of work about it, either storytelling or adding it into stand-up or trying to find different, um, you know, short plays, ways for it to, to come out into the art. And I thought that that would be really scary. I thought that would be like, 
I would say I'm an alcoholic and everyone would be like, boo, you're, you're <laughs> sad and boring, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I found it to be very therapeutic to process it in, in public. Um, yeah. And just to be able to, to say it. And, and then not only you tell your, your, your sad story about alcoholism and everyone claps for you, you know, that yeah. helps a yeah. lot. Um, and then a lot of people coming up afterwards and saying, me too. I could never like, I'm, I'm scared of getting up and talking about it or thank you for talking about it. And I don't know, that's, that's a helpful way forward of it. It took me a long time uh, to to talk about it because of the clapping. I hated it. Mm. I hated it. I would bring it up and people would start clapping. It's like, please, I don't, I didn't, I literally, you guys are clapping because I didn't do a thing. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm just not doing something. Right. That doesn't, that's not an achievement to me. Keep it up. I'm just avoiding, <laughs> yeah, like you're clapping because I just stay inside all the time <laughs> and I don't go anywhere. And I have all of these like, you know, rules and stipulations for everything that I do please stop. Um, but then eventually, you know, even with this podcast, as it's like getting bigger and bigger, people are coming up and they're like, yeah, it really spoke to me. And there's still a part of me is like, please don't talk. I don't want to talk about this. Like just share it with other people, but make a forum. I don't want to, you know, but it is, it is really, uh, it does kind of motivate me to keep like pushing the the podcast forward or pushing it into the creativity. Cause like you said, it's, it's hard to avoid especially when you're writing and you're like, I was at a meeting of smokers who hold chips at 8, 8, 8 p.m. Uh, for no reason whatsoever. We were all just hanging out in a church basement. Yeah, just a very and it's like, hang. <laughs> yeah, it was just me and my 48-year-old friend Earl <laughs> and then like my other 19-year-old friend Jeff, and we all have a variety of ages for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so you just have to admit it and you have to like push through it, you know, and it does like integrated into the, uh, into your psyche and into your work. Yeah. Well, and I think something that I kept running into, not a lot, but enough that I thought it was weird was people were like, well, you, you're probably not actually an alcoholic. Like you're really young. Cause I was 26 when I first got sober Oh man! and yeah. people would be like, you're going to grow out of it. And oh. I finally kind of had to say to someone once, um, I'm going to kill myself. Like, that's what, that's what that is for me. Like, it's a loaded gun. So I guess maybe I could have a glass of wine with the girls and then shoot myself in the mouth. Like, like that's what you're talking about. Because I, I had to be like, that's what it is for me. For you, it's like, mm, I have a little headache after, you know, happy hour. For me, it's a loaded gun. And they were like, okay, great. I will never say those things to you again. I was like, perfect. <laughs> but people, you know, people have an image of what an alcoholic is supposed to be, what an addict is supposed yep. to be. It is Earl. It is someone who has completely wrecked their life. Someone who lost custody of their kids. Someone who has no job, no control. And I'm sure I could have gotten there very, very quickly. Like, I definitely could have lost absolute control of my life, but why not? Like, I mean, I hit a, I had a bottom. Sure. I hit, I hit a bottom. I had, I had lots of embarrassing, horrible things that, that happened, but like, I didn't kill anyone. I didn't wreck a car doing that. When I was sober, I 
drove a car into a building, but that was just because I was 16 and stupid. But, you know, why wait for the absolute? <laughs> I, I could tell the car story. I know. Again, it's one of those things, not everybody did that. No, I, I begged to get my license when I was 16. And um, then I wanted, then I was driving home after a volleyball game. And I was like, oh, I'm so cool. I got my license three days ago. I'm so awesome. I wanted to go get some ice cream from Dairy Queen. So I pull into the local Dairy Queen parking lot and I went to park in the parking spot. And my front tire, I believe, got caught on the concrete because I was taking it so wide. And I was like, huh, my tire must be stuck over something. Let me just... I can just hop over what it is. And so I um, pressed the gas down all the way and I launched over the sidewalk into a building. Luckily, it was just through the window of the computer store that was opening the next week. <laughs> so nobody was hurt because like i legitimately like would have murdered a person if they had been walking there but everybody from the la rosa's pizza place came running out to be like who is this insane drunk person and it was like me in a volleyball uniform with my side ponytail it was it was a different time my high school mascot was the braves so i did have war paint on you know again <laughs> different time 2004 we just we didn't know I'm from Atlanta. I get yes, it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, and then I'm like, but I'm sitting there and they, everyone was like, what, what happened to you? And I was like, um, I was trying to park the car. They're like, yeah. So the cops came, the fire truck came and I, they said, are you drunk? And I said, I've never even kissed a boy. And they were like, it's not what we asked, but okay. <laughs> that's fine too. And, um, yeah, they didn't cite me because, uh, I'm a, white suburban Ohio kid. And, but the insurance I just, was like, yeah, you, you're going to pay a lot for this. <laughs> that poor owner of that computer store. He was like, I've saved up all of my money. I finally got the loans. It's time. My dream is coming up. Yes. And then, the, then suddenly. Yes. In a perfect spot next to the Dairy Queen, you know, kids will keep coming. Yeah. They'll come right into the computer store. And then, yeah, just. All of our hard work is coming to fruition. All and, out of oh. nowhere, this this volleyball player has started this a war. With slightly racist volleyball player <laughs> with war paint on. Right. Like, are they all coming back? Like, as a team? <laughs> I see that story is this like I was sober I'd never you know like didn't drink and people I would tell that and people were like oh because you're an alcoholic and I'd be like no not not at that point I was just a, a bad driver like <laughs> I was still straight edge at the time exactly you know I, I, I did pray about it I was like Jesus I'm so sorry for doing I didn't even apologize to the computer store guy but I apologized no, you just, just skip everybody. Go to straight to God. Mm -hmm. I was like, please make me not have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in miracles. No, but um, so I didn't do that when I was drunk. And all that to say, I think a lot of people think I'm not that bad. I can wait until something really terrible happens and then I'll get help. 
you know, yeah, I haven't done X yet. I'm not as bad as this person. Surely I am a normal drinker. And I'm like, I think if you're having that conversation with yourself, come on over here. <laughs> I totally agree. I mean, there's also the whole thing where if you were like, I, I was a great drunk. I didn't get super mad or like pass out or like, you know, pee all over the place. But I had a, I would tell people that I don't have a drinking problem. I have a hangover problem <laughs> because the next day I was just fucking dead until I drank again and I couldn't do anything. Um, and that was what really like was the catalyst for me because so many times you think that like, oh, that guy who like starts all these bar fights, that's an alcoholic yeah. or the guy who's like passing out on the street on their way home. That's an alcoholic. Yeah. But it could easily just be, you know, someone who just likes drinking or like you were saying, like I all, my first time I got sober, I was 26 and it didn't take. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, I got there was several times after that. But the first time I did um, come across a lot of that, like, are you an alcoholic or are you just like a, a party guy? Are you like, is that are you just a drinker? Like that might just be like your thing. And you know, I was doing stand up. I was like working in the restaurant industry. So I was around a lot of people who were like, yeah, I just like, we like to get loose and drink a lot. And I, so many people would, you know, convince me that like, no, no, you're not passing out or like, you're usually the life of the party. And I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it's just like that kind of stigma that sits there where we have to like break it down and be like, it could easily be as simple as someone who is just having fun all the time, but you don't know what's happening when they wake up in the morning. You know, you don't know what their life is going into or how it is like a, a game of Russian roulette around the bar just to like, you know, celebrate a, a win or like a play or something like that. Um, it's always, it's always very personal, you know? Yeah. Well, and you know, I would, I would be very calibrated being out with people and I would be very fun and very, you know, I learned how to be very fun and then I would go home and finish drinking. And so it was yeah. like, when I'm out, That's like I'm a one part. or two drink gal, but like I'm telling jokes and I'm having fun. And then it would be like, okay, everyone's gone. And, and usually it would be like some poor boyfriend or roommate or someone would have to be, you know, also there, but it would be like, that's when I did my real drinking was alone. And I, again, just thought that was normal you know, it was like, everybody's hanging out. Cool. And then you get home and you like drink yourself to sleep because that's ideal. And there, and you know, the same person could, you can go shot for shot with someone who doesn't have a problem, who can just, you know, not go out the next night and you drink the same amount. You drink, you're from the same place, siblings, even, you know, it's like, you're from the same family it's cunning, baffling, powerful. Addiction doesn't really care. And it doesn't, it's not so discerning, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Do you find that, um, back to kind of that, I like that you said Bacchanalia earlier. I can't, I, it's like ringing in my head. I can't stop thinking about <laughs> it. Uh, and cause I, I just, I know what you mean. Like they're, especially in theater and stand up. There is this kind of like, you know, you're calling upon the god Dionysus to like inspire you and the mages, you know, not mages, the muses, the muses yeah. or mages, depending on what the play's about. Um, but, you know, like, do you finding that now that you're sober, there's a little bit of a, a border that you have to put down or is it 
a little or like a boundary? Yeah, I think part of it coincides with like, specifically the Chicago theater community, I think has had a lot of reckoning with professionalism and abuse, both like emotional and sexual in nature that if you are, if you are the person in charge and you're paying other people that you probably shouldn't, um, can I swear on here? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you probably should fuck yeah. yeah, don't fuck the interns, <laughs> you know, like that kind of, like if, if you're in charge of hiring and firing people, you do have to have a little decorum and you can't just hire, uh, you know, blonde girls from Northwestern to like get you coffee and then you ruin their lives. Um, but those are just some specific uh, things. So I think that there's, there's that kind of thing that, that, that happened for the whole community. And then for me, part of it is that I'm so loud about it. And I, both in the work that I do and just kind of on social media, you know, it's always something that I talk about that people kind of know what I'm up for or not up for. So like there are, there are certain pockets of communities or certain, even there's, you know, like drunk Shakespeare or, or things like that, that drinking game theater comedy places that like, I have friends that do that, but yeah, but there's kind of a like, yeah, I, I'm not going to come to your show, but like, good luck. Great. Awesome. You know, it's just not the, the vibe there. Um, and I also feel like since I have come out uh, uh, as an al alcoholic, like very, very publicly, you know, I've seen lots of people and not saying like I opened, opened the door, but like the, a lot of people then was have also said, yes, me as well. Like there, there are kind of more and more people being loud about it in these past few years, whatever community they're in. I think the stigma is breaking. Um, social media is a nightmare for a lot of reasons, but I do think it can be helpful for things like this, that you can look mm -hmm. around at your community and see people talking about things like that. Um, and I, yeah, so I, I think that there, there are more sober people that are loud about things now in different com uh, artistic communities. But I also like, if I meet someone who I think drinks dangerously and maybe not for themselves, but drinks in a way that makes me feel unsafe, um, which for them, you know, it's like they could be a perfectly normal, happy, fun time drinker, but there's something about them that for me, I just, it, it's a me problem. Then I'm like, awesome. I, I, I don't, don't, I just don't want to hang with that person. I'll still work with people. But then if people start drinking in the theater or people start drinking like, oh, let's all go out to the bar. I'll be like, well, I'm not going to go, but you all have fun. Cause I do think it's important to say you guys go, but know that that's not an environment for everyone. You know, I had to do that just last week. Yeah. I, I cause I work in advertising. So I, I'm a creative in advertising. So a lot of the younger creatives were going to Snickers. Have you ever been to Snickers? No. It's like the, it is like the dive bar of river North. Yeah. It is like sticky floors. They have some sort of shot. That's like Everclear and Gatorade. Oh. It's called a Windex shot. It, yeah, my mouth was, just went really dry. Cool. Like, yeah. just, <laughs> I was like, Oh no, I need, I need to hydrate. 
<laughs> yeah. So they invited, it's like, you know, there's like Rossi's down the street too, that opens at 8 a.m. Um, and they invited me and they're like, Hey, we're all going to Snickers. Do you want to come? And I was like, that's not the right environment for me, but you guys have fun. You enjoy your Everclear and, and, and Gatorade. And I'm going to, I'm going to go home and, and get, get to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Do what I love the most. And it's like not to feel guilty for them, you know, don't feel guilty or bad about, it, but just also, I do think it's important to let people know, like, that's not an inclusive environment. Like it's okay. Yeah. It's totally fine. In the same way that like, if you have someone who is, uh, has a disability and you're like, well, there's no ramp and we're all going to walk up the stairs. Like, sure. But also you are, you know, I, I don't mean to like make that a, a, a one-to-one example, but just that like, it's not an, it's, these are not always inclusive environments. Yeah. It's not your thing. Yeah. Well, and to go back to what you were saying about when you, you started being more vocal, either on stage or off stage about your alcoholism and sobriety and all this, uh, when you start doing that and other people come to you or they come to themselves in that same way where they are going, yeah, okay, me too. Um, it's a really powerful thing where you by admitting to yourself that yeah i have a problem and i'm going to be vocal about it you're not only are you giving yourself permission to be vocal about it creatively but you're also giving everybody else who needs who who it's not like everybody needs permission but some people i mean i i'll include myself sometimes i feel the need to be given permission to be honest or open about you know just anything yeah and so you give permission to others to do the same. And that's what is so important about creative expression uh, regarding this topic specifically, just because it's such a, just the, like the through line of all of the, the conversation today has been, this is, this is as subtle as it is explosive is yeah. the drinking problem. And we, no one knows what an alcoholic looks like because there's no way that you're supposed to look like anything um and just being able to for yourself to have those like one woman shows or, or being able to direct a play or write a play that deals with these issues it's a it's a facilitation of a conversation that doesn't need to be had explicitly yeah. and and it really opens up people to just being able to through your art look at themselves and just kind of go, you know, just have, have a, have a moment with themselves. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I think in whatever issue it is, whether it's like, you know, any part of your life, your spirituality, your self-esteem that we, we do want, we try to recognize ourselves within stories, movies, yeah. TV, especially, um, and, and plays and books and things, you know, we want to recognize ourselves and and see how similar is this character to me? How different are they to me? Um, and I will say what's interesting too is, so the play that I'm directing right now, um, is a, it's a new play um, and it is about someone who is within their first 30 days of recovery. Um, it's about a lot of things, but that is one of the characters. And I don't know that I could have 
I feel like I'm far enough away from my first 30 days in recovery that I feel comfortable accessing some of the painful things in the play. And I don't know if like in my first few years of sobriety, if I would have been solid enough to kind of go back to that place. Cause first 30 days and honestly, shout out to anybody in the, in their first 30 days, because it is, it is oh, man. rough times. And I just have nothing but respect for people fighting for days, you know, that's that. And, and for me, it's a good kind of thing in the back of my mind of like, I, I don't, I don't want to be where I was in my first 30 days. Like that was very painful. Um, and so in working on the play, uh, household spirits opening at theater wit in, in October, um, <laughs> it, having to kind of access that from my own experience, but also knowing like this is a character who's different than I am. So using my experience and infusing that with what is on the page and also from what everyone else in the company, the ensemble brings to it. Um, Cause it's not, again, it's not a one-to-one. -one. It's not like I experienced this. And so this is what this person's experiencing. Um, but it is a very, yeah, there's a, just a lot of, harrowing memories of of those first 30 days oh yeah those are the those the worst 30 days except for the 30 days after that yeah, yeah. and then the 30 <laughs> days after that yeah. one no i'm just the next 30 days are pretty tough yeah and then for a few years every 30 days it just gets worse <laughs> yeah. well and the the first 30 days were always in all of the attempts that i made to try to quit drinking uh the first 30 days were the the deciding factor like it would, it would be, if mm -hmm. I didn't make it to the 30 day mark, then I was, I was back and worse before, right. um, or worse than before. Um, I think I, I would, I would only make it about two weeks in a, in a general sense. And that, that was when you make it to 30 days, it's like hitting the, like you've just summited something because you have, um, but then of course, like you mentioned Jody, there's just another mountain after that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that like another motivator to even stay sober, because then if you drink again, you have to get sober again, which means you have to do those 30 days again. And I don't I like all the times I've had to do those 30 days because I've gone like, you know, a couple of months here, a year there, things like that. And those I just don't ever want to go back to that 30 days. So even just to do that for your play in an artistic sense is like exploring what is to me like a very traumatic uh, you know, experience. I mean, even physically, your body is adjusting from just pumping it full of toxins. And so you're like, you're full of all these emotions. Like I remember I was constantly throwing up. I didn't go to like, I did, I white knuckled it. Uh, and I didn't have anything to like help with the nausea or anything like that. So I was just like shivering in the corner and, and, and feeling terrible about myself and then also emotionally feeling terrible. And then also I had to work and then, you know what I mean? There's like, I had to like manage my life as well. And it's yeah. just like, yeah, those first 30 days is a huge, huge adjustment. And there's also the whole um, identity aspect of it. Yeah. Like you were saying, like, there's that part where, are you a drinker? Are you an alcoholic? Like, is it even worth it to go through those first 30 days? Well, it's incredible. And, and I think too, what is so insidious is that 
you know the solution to your problem. Like when you're sick and you feel and you're getting the shakes and you feel horrible and your brain is racing, you know exactly what to do to fix it. And that I think is the most frustrating thing is like, I'm not an idiot. I know, I know the solution. And it really is like, um, I, I mean, it, it, it physically, it feels like a toddler getting weaned off of a pacifier because they want the thing that soothes them. They, they know what they can put in their mouth to calm them down. And in asking someone to learn how to regulate either without a pacifier or without a bottle, you're like, your brain's like, no, we regulate with the thing, you know? And so something that I, I find really interesting in this play is like this character who's a, you know, like an adult man in his fifties, how has he, I always think, you know, look to think about what was this person like before the play begins and what, you know, what were they like yesterday? What are, what are things usually like in this place and how do they change based on the action of the play? And it's like, yeah, this guy's probably a pretty easygoing, affable, chilled person. And the fact that he's gotten caught drinking and now has to be sober, like he's angry and that's new to people that he's snapping, mm -hmm. that he's, you know, kind of picking at things that he's, that he's, uh, kind of blowing up, you know, that that's not, that's not his usual. Um, so it's been interesting to calibrate that with the actor and to look at, you know, on, on a better day, he would be like, oh, that doesn't bother me. Cause I can just, I'll, I, cause I have a drink in my hand and I'm hanging out. But today, because I'm fighting, you know, symptoms and I want a drink, it, it becomes an explosive situation. Let's yeah. Let's talk more about the play. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. Well, so what's it called again? It's called Household Spirits. And where can I see it? You can see it at Theater Wit, uh, which is in Lakeview. And uh, I have all the dates memorized so that I can do them off. Okay. So uh, October 6th, we start previews. Um, and the preview process for this show is really interesting in that we will be um, sometimes like when sh uh, theaters have previews, it's like, it's just a cheaper ticket. The show's already done and everything's ready. These previews are, are rehearsals so that we are still working on the show. So audiences can come to see it when we are still working. So there might not be final costume pieces. There might be not, there might not be final lights, but we use it to get the audience in as quick as possible so that we can, you know, calibrate, change these things based on audience reaction. Um, so it's really interesting to be able to do that. It's also because it's a new play. So it's written by Mia McCullough, who's a Chicago playwright. Um, she's been, she's been produced all over the country. And this is the first time this play has gone up. So it's been workshopped. It's been, there's been readings. So if there are things that we find, oh, we want to change this, that she's in the room and she can be like, great, say 15 instead of tuna fish or whatever, like she can decide to change it. Um, so the preview start October 6th and then we open on October 19th and it runs for a couple weeks after that through the 11th. Um, so folks can go on theaterwit.org to get tickets right now. Um, 
Yeah. So we would love to have people come in for previews to, and I want to, you know, I think you get to fill out a form or, you know, hear people's thoughts about the show. Um, and we're also hoping to do maybe a few talkbacks about the different themes of, of the show. Um, cause not only is it about alcoholism, it's also about, uh, mental illness and suicide. It is about Jewish identity. It's about, um, economic disparity and it's also about a ghost so what's this um what's the synopsis <laughs> that's, that's a lot there's a lot of... that's a great question um yeah so it, it, it is um i have to memorize that pitch but it's it's two it's a blended family coming together to celebrate the holidays um and only one of them is a ghost haunting the the families unseen. So it's kind of these um, people that ha some people haven't spent a lot of time together, uh, all kind of crammed in this house for both Christmas and Hanukkah and, you know, different, different secrets coming to light and um, people's intentions and unfinished business uh, kind of coming to light as well. So yeah, a little spooky, okay. a little spooky. That's so cool. How did, how did this project get, like, how did this play end up with you or did you seek it out or? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the playwright Mia um, has people close to her that have experienced addiction and alcoholism, but it was important to her to bring on a director that had that lived experience. Um, and so she, a, a lot of the things in the play have seeds of, reality in her life you know like she, there are there are certain things that kind of um come for, like it's it's about it takes place in chappaqua new york where she grew up and there are people that are you know kind of loosely based but yeah she was looking for some specifically a sober director and i kind of threw my hat in the ring um and yeah we i sort of pitched my thoughts about the play uh, to her. And I think we just really aligned on, on both the subject matter and the tone, because for all I'm describing, it is a very dark, dark comedy. Um, and I think sounds hilarious. Yeah, I know, right. I keep being like alcoholism, <laughs> family trauma, mental illness, like a, a million laughs. Um, <laughs> and I think that she is a, uh, very known for her kind of caustic wit that it is humor, but in uh, under the guise of some really dark shit. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be a holiday piece if it wasn't, you know, a little spooky, a little family trauma in there, a little, a little alcoholism. I'm a little surprised that the main character's first 30 days is going to be in December. That's like the worst time to try to get sober. Yeah. You know? Well, he it, it, it wasn't his decision, I will say. It sort of opens oh. up, the play opens up with like, he got arrested. <laughs> okay. And that's Terrible time to get arrested. Yes. Yeah. Tale as old as time though. Like so many, so many other, uh, you know, sober people. Yeah. <laughs> but that, the conversation kind of comes in the play of like, are you really an alcoholic or did you just get unlucky coming home from a business dinner, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, sure, you have a DWI, but is it really that bad, you know? And people are asking him that, 
like and and you know kind of some people have opinions on whether or not he is an alcoholic or not um and that's I, that's what i always think is interesting too you know you can you can't really take a test and be diagnosed you know you can't like fill out a form they can't take your blood and check off alcoholic like it really has to be your own decision um despite what the people around you think if, if they think that you are they think that you aren't it's it's the best and worst aspects of alcoholism is is that right there yeah. where you have it's it's you have to be so honest with yourself because no one else can tell you um and even if they do tell you, you are not going to listen to them anyway. So it's, it's really, really, that's such a really, I love that so much because it, it's such a powerful framing device for a play, but it, it's, it's so, um, it, it just hearing you talk about it's making me very flustered because I'm still like, even being <laughs> in recovery, I'm just going, well, but who can decide like, you, you still have those flashes where you go, well, maybe I should have just like, you know, stop, like pump the brakes a little. Maybe, maybe I wasn't, maybe I didn't have a problem, but now mm -hmm. I'm so far into this that um, it's kind of like Jody's sandwich where like, I'm just, I'm carrying a sandwich in my pocket now, I guess. Like, this is just who I am. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're all, it's, it's a constant dialogue with yourself like every day. <laughs> where you have to decide, like, I guess today I'm an alcoholic too, and I'm not going to drink because of that. Well, and I, yeah. I think in long-term sobriety, a lot of people struggle with like, maybe I, maybe I can go back. Maybe I've calmed down enough. Da, da, da. And there are times I've even thought that to myself, like, I, I bet you I could have one glass of wine. And then I have to remember, like, I don't want one glass of wine. I don't. And, and I think people that do are insane. Um, and talking about how art influences, you know, I remember the first time I saw the West Wing episode where Leo McGarry talks about drinking and he says, I don't understand how people want just one drink. And I was like, so afraid in that, like, it, I, I honestly was like, oh my God, is Aaron Sorkin like reading my diary, you know, <laughs> because it just felt so, um, invasive into my own mm. thoughts and, I, I mean, I honestly like then went and made myself a drink because I was like, I can't handle this like yeah. sense of being seen. Um, and I mean, and again, it's, it's, I, I always sort of take it to the extreme metaphor of I could probably drink a glass of wine and I could probably like jump out onto Lakeshore Drive and I might not get hit by a car and killed. Maybe like fingers crossed. But like, I probably would, you know, if I jump yeah. off a building, I may break only my legs, but I will probably die. Um, and that's just well, the extreme I have to go to. No, and yeah, that's, that's it's insidious. Important. Yeah. Like what you said earlier about like your friends saying like, why, well, you can have one or something and you like, I, that is such an apt analogy of, well, that's a loaded gun. Yeah. Like. I mean, you would be, I would be ordering a gun at yeah. the bar and, right. and it really is that it, it is that destructive. Um, and just, but it doesn't happen so instantly. It's like, 
it's like the gun, you shoot it and then it slowly gets into your brain over the course of six months yeah. and then you die. It's like a slow motion like, matrix. Yeah, thing. yeah. You're just like going about your day while this bullet's like going towards your head the whole time. Yeah. 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 It's just like a, it's a slow death. There's a there's another quote. Ah, man, it's like a famous writer, and I can't think of his name right now. But it's um, he says one isn't enough and two's too many. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, I was like, oh shit, that's me. That's me. <laughs> like my favorite. You know, is you have uh, Carrie Fisher in her um, memoir. She says instant gratification takes too long, and I just. my queen you know oh terry fisher's the best she oh she's somebody it's like carrie fisher and robin williams and roger ebert i'm like i miss them every day you know like every day i think the world would be better if like roger ebert was reviewing movies still and carrie fisher was like hanging out with me (laughs) (laughs) her documentary um steven wright did a documentary on bipolarism with her and that was like it was so outstanding and it was i remember watching it when i first got sober and just a lot of the things she was saying just rang with me for the longest time yeah and just i always checked in on her i just love how she was it she maintained her weirdness you know what i mean yeah like i was one part of me when i got sober was like but this is how I stay weird. And if I get sober, I'm like pushing myself to be like the other, but like the lame other. And I want to be the fun other. I want to be like the weird guy and like be able to like be that creative who kind of like pushes things. And then, and Carrie Fisher is like her, just the way that she approached life. She's like, no, you can do that sober. Yeah. You can keep pushing and being weird and, and, and surprising people with your, your odds, your odds and ends and all that, you know? Yeah. She's such an inspiration. I think that's a lot of people, especially in comedy, where people will be like, but sober is boring. Um, mm-hmm. I heard, I forget who it was, but someone that I either hated or hated them after they said this for sure was like, I'm glad Mitch Hedberg never got sober because he, he wouldn't have been funny. And I was like, wow. that's a really oh. shitty thing to say about someone who fucking died of an overdose. Like, wow. that, that you'd rather this person be dead than not funny. And that was, it was such a shocking thing to hear someone say out loud, because I've certainly said that to myself of like, if you lose your creative spark, you should die. Like there's nothing good about you except these things that you can, you know, if you're not funny, if you're not telling stories, then what good are you in the world? And it's like, man, it's taken me a while to get to the place to be like, I am good to the world. I am good for myself, you know, and truthfully, I make myself laugh harder than anyone else does. So (laughs) uh, I have a great audience of one, but I think that is a a real fear of what if I get boring? What if I get not funny? And I don't know anyone that, um, I don't really know anyone whose work gets better the the more um lost they get in alcoholism and addiction you know like the less sober people are um the sloppier they get the less creative they get you know even even if the thoughts feel like they're coming only from drugs or alcohol like if you can't write it down if you can't deliver it if you're slurring like i don't know you're you're not creating your best art drunk 
and you're not creating your best art high. Like you're just not, I mean, you might feel like you are, but you're, I, I feel like that is a hard and fast rule. You're not, you know. Yeah. You're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah. 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 That, that was always an issue for me when I was doing stand up was this idea that if I stop drinking, then I won't be the comic that I know I can be or whatever. And I, I, the reason I asked you about content earlier was because the more I kept drinking, no, even knowing that I shouldn't be, the more my content just kept being cyclical of just like finding new ways to talk about my life, which was just drinking. And, and it, it, it became like the jokes about drinking became, like you said, sloppier and sloppier and less thought out and more just you just get on stage so that someone will light you so you can go back to your drink. Um, and, and I think that there is, maybe you can speak to this though. Like when you, when you get sober, that creative, it does feel like the creative spark is somehow lost, but it's really just because it's just jumbled. It's like discombobulated. Um, and it takes a minute to find your footing, but once you do, um, the things you can talk about are just so expansive. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I, I love the movie days of wine and roses with Jack Lemon and, um, I think it's Lee Grant. Uh, and it is a very kind of early depiction of alcoholism, um, you know, in a mainstream movie, like to the point where we're literally like somebody walks in and goes, I, I have this, uh, there's this organization it's called alcoholics anonymous and you know the music is like what so it I mean, it has it has its moments of being very like melodramatic um but it is about two people who like fall in love drunk and you know one of them wants needs to stop and the other one doesn't want to stop um but they have this repeated uh line of dialogue about like looking in the water and how the water clouds things over and you don't really have to see things clearly. And that that's why you keep drinking is because you don't want to have to see the things clearly. And I related to that so much because yeah, when you're drunk, you don't have to look at everything. You, you barely have to hold your head up on your own. And when you're sober, for better or for worse, you have to see everything. You have to see everything about yourself. I always find like, well, now I, I watch people to make sure they're okay. You know, like, oh, now I see everybody at the party and I'm like, oh, let me go, let me go help that person. <laughs> you know, that person needs to sit down. <laughs> but, you know, you, you have to sit with your own thoughts and you have to see the world as it is, uh, which is tough. We live in a world. Um, and I think that that gets that can be very overwhelming. It's like going to Las Vegas where you're like, oh, this is too overwhelming. There's too much stimulation. I have to like close my eyes. And, you know, I went to Las Vegas and I was like, I have to sit down and close my eyes because this is just too much physical stimulation. Um, but then eventually you get used. I mean, I guess in the like the metaphor of the creative spark, it's like, if you thought your creativity was this out of control fire and it was so dangerous and you're like in a burning down house and that's exciting and sexy and you're making things, 
It's like you figure out that you can sit by a campfire and still be warm. You know, like you can sit at a, at a hearth. You can warm your hands on a candle. You're not afraid anymore. You're not like it's not this, again, exciting, uh, passionate, out of control thing, but it still can do the job. You know, you, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be that way. Wow. I think that's a really good place to wrap it up. I'm going to go write a poem, you know? Yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah. That was absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, talk about, let's, okay, let's plug your play again. Yes. Uh, Household Spirits playing at Theater Wit, theaterwit.org. Um, first preview, uh, October 6th. Uh, that's two days after my birthday oh my for our God. listeners. Yeah, so celebrate so, Jody's birthday. Yeah, if you guys want to buy me a ticket to Theater <laughs> Wit for my birthday, then we can go to the previews and give our thoughts together. Not everyone at once. I don't want to see it like a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, October 6th, Theater Wit, Household Spirits. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And, the, and this is Eileen Toll, the director. And... Um, yeah, that was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you both so much for having me. And, you know, if anyone ever, I'm, I'm on all the social media stuff as Eileen Tall. And then it's just, it's me. There's this old lady in Maryland named Eileen Tall, and she shows her flowers a lot. But I think you can probably tell which one is which. So. Follow both. Yeah, Follow that both. sounds like yeah. good content. DM both. That's right. <laughs>